0: Shorter than last time, so that should give you some comfort. Last time I talked quite a lot about our set times for prayer and the importance of putting regular times aside and how we might fill those times which we have set aside. And this evening I want to start by talking about another aspect of prayer, you know, about the other times of prayer, the prayer at odd moments of the day. And uh, I'm going to start by reading from Luke 18, verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Always to pray. That is from the Revised Standard Standard Version translation. The Jerusalem Bible has pray continually. And in Romans chapter 12, St. Paul says, Be constant in prayer. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, St. Paul says, Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances. Well now, what are these texts of Scripture asking us to do? Well, they're not asking us to spend the whole day saying prayers. That would not be possible, that would not be practical, and that's not desirable. Nevertheless, we can move towards the state where we are living more and more in the presence of God where we're living in sort of continual union with him. A sort of prayer of a more contemplative state of life. And I think that is the sort of fulfilling of this command of the Lord. But it's good to remind ourselves that saying prayers is not exactly the same thing as praying, necessarily. You know, we can be saying prayers and not praying, and we can be praying and not saying prayers, and hopefully we can sometimes be doing both together. So, uh, we're going to be talking more about the sort of wider aspect of prayer. Now, theologians distinguish, you know, in the life of prayer, various stages, and one of the sort of groups of distinctions they make is between discursive prayer, affective prayer, and contemplative prayer. And I'm going to say a few words about these, and I don't want you to think this is just for special people who read books on prayer and it doesn't mean anything to, or can't mean anything to a simple person like myself. Because what I hope to show is that, you know, what the theologians and spiritual writers are saying about these things correspond with the experience which ordinary people do have in prayer. And first, about discursive prayer. What is discursive prayer? Discursive prayer uses the discursive reason. And often brings in the use of imagination. I think the rosary is a typical form of discursive prayer, although the rosary can be prayed in different ways. Or when somebody's meditating, say, on another of the texts of the gospel, and someone can sort of imagine the scene. Some people are better at imagining than others. They can think how Our Lady felt when she saw Jesus on the cross, and what she thought of St. John there, and what reaction that had, what feelings that gave her in the heart, people can sort of reason about these things, mm-hmm. and then they can see, well, well, how does that apply to me? And of course you can find it applies to me that if Jesus gave his life for me in this way, suffered all these things for me, then I need to thank him and praise him and give my life for him. And uh, this is a form of prayer, discursive prayer, which is especially helpful for people at the beginning of their conversion. People who have the beginning of a conversion particularly find that form of prayer helpful usually. And but of course we never entirely grow out of that form of prayer. I mean, throughout the whole life of the very greatest thing, there need to be times when we reflect discursively on the gospel, on Jesus' life, on the, 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 the events portrayed in the New Testament. But nevertheless, maybe as time goes on, we should be involved less in discursive reasoning and more in other forms of prayer. And indeed, it's right to say that some people never find this kind of prayer very helpful, while other people tend to find it more helpful. Again, remember what I said in the previous talk, pray as you can and not as you can't. And now, effective prayer. What is effective prayer? Affective prayers involved with affective acts of the will, repetitive acts of the will, repetition of words or phrases normally, short phrases. For instance, like the Jesus prayer which we talked about, Jesus have mercy on me a sinner, or Jesus have mercy on me. Or it could be sort of praise you Jesus, thank you Jesus, glory to you Jesus, or thank you Heavenly Father. Or just a repetition of the word Jesus alone. And so sort of a repetition going on, sort of uh, helping us to become recollected and center on Jesus. Indeed, some people call this prayer centering prayer by that meaning, to precisely to center on Jesus. There's a, a, an English a book, an English mystical book of the 14th century. And nobody knows who the author is, called the Cloud of Unknowing, which is very much mentioned in books on prayer in these days. And there, the author talks about beating on this cloud of unknowing, and he recommends a sort of single-syllable word like God or something, just to go on beating on it. Other people refer to Christian mantras because there's a parallel here in some of the meditative techniques of, sort of Eastern gurus and people. Well, <laughs> but, uh, but this is something which is deeply in Christian tradition, not something borrowed from them. The so sort of the repetition of sort of A short phrase or word which sort of centers our prayer on Jesus or on our Heavenly Father. And I would, for many people at any rate, recommend a variety of phrases. I mean, sometimes I find it very helpful to say, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I go on repeating that for a time. Other times I find it, and the Spirit is leading me to say, praise you, Jesus, praise you, Jesus, praise you, Jesus. Or, thank you, Father. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you, Father. Or other times, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Or, Our Lady, pray for me. Our Lady, pray for me. Our Lady, pray for me, a sinner. You know, the Spirit will sort of guide each person. But to go on, giving a certain amount of time, just a repetition of a short phrase or word like that, it sort of centers us on Jesus. And... And it can be good in, our, in this, uh, the time we set aside for prayer in the day to give a certain amount of time just to this. Just the sort of repetition of some phrases or words which helps to recollect us in this way. But it can be also good, and I think this links up with it, you know, just to, make, to say these arrow prayers. You know, all odd moments of the day, perhaps in the middle of a job, in the middle of talking to someone, in the middle of work, just these arrow prayers, a sort of dancing prayer up to God. It's very good to do that as much as we can. It's sort of, you know, bring God into a situation. We might do it because it's a difficult situation. You know, you're talking to someone and you're trying to help them and it's going the wrong way or it doesn't seem to be much happening, so you say, Jesus, help me help Jesus, or Jesus bless this person, or Jesus help this situation, or praise Jesus. Just Perhaps a sort of a darting arrow prayer. And certainly that's something which is very good to try and have it. It's very a habit of grace, so to speak, which is try to, good to try to get him to. And then another thing very much to be recommended is making the most of the free moments of time in the day, the free the spaces of time. You know, in the days of all of us, in, there are sort of times when nothing is happening. You may be waiting for the bus. You may be waiting for the, the dinner to arrive. You may be traveling up the stairs in the lift. You may have telephoned someone and the line's occupied and you're just waiting before you telephone again. Well, now these are precious moments which can be given to prayer. Wonderful moments which can be given to prayer. And so often we can waste these moments doing nothing or just fretting because the phone's occupied or whatever. And they can be glorious moments. You know, sometimes I get on, put on what we call door duty in our monastery. That's to say, when somebody rings, I'm the one who goes to the door. And uh, it's surprising how much praising God you can do in the sort of 20 hours walk from my room to the front door. And how often do I instead go to the front door saying, oh dear, I wish they wouldn't ring. Oh dear, they're going to take up my time. <laughs> well... Ah, if we could learn to give those moments to prayer, not to those spaces in the day, those spaces in life, to make good use of them for prayer. And effective prayer, there can be I mean, a good way of filling those spaces. And now I come to contemplative prayer or contemplation. And the first thing I would say is, please don't be frightened by those words. Now there may be be certainly some people sitting here who say, Oh dear, that's all right for sort of holy sisters, you know, uh, in contemplative convents, but I'm just far too much of a sinful, ordinary person that's miles above my head. I can't aspire to that sort of thing. Uh, That's for a few sort of chosen souls, not for me. And, you know, don't be put off because it is quite normal for devout Christians to experience contemplative prayer. It's quite normal. Indeed, I agree with those theologians who say we're all called to contemplative prayer. And you know, I think that many people who've never read a book about contemplative prayer, never listened to a sermon about contemplative prayer, would then be absolutely shy off if you suggested they're do with contemplative prayer, are very often much more full of contemplative prayer than some people in enclosed contemplative communities. Somebody who's been faithful in life, perhaps as a a wife and a mother in difficult circumstances, a neighbor who's been loving, who's really spent their life in helping others, perhaps they've reached the evening of their life, you know, they'll often know contemplative graces and contemplative blessings, which maybe most or many of the sisters in the community wouldn't know. But God gives his graces, you know, when he wills and how he wills, and to those, you know, who he sees it's right to give them. So don't say, this isn't for me. You know, we can all be called to contemplative prayer. And that can be largely resting in the presence of God. And it can largely be wordless, just being in his presence. Do You remember the story of the peasant in the, in the parish of the Curida, who used to just sort of go and kneel in the church, look at, at the tabernacle and stay there for hours. And people said, well, sort of, what do you do? And he said, well, you know, I look at him and he looks at me. And that was it. Now, there was a real contemplative. You'd have been very surprised if you told him that. But there was somebody who was deep in contemplative prayer. So don't say, not for me. Now, fully contemplative prayer is infused and passive. And don't be put off by those words, because they really can mean something to you and to me. Infused. We talk about infusing, say, liquid into, into a glass. Infused, it's something something poured in by God. And it's when he pours in this prayer into us, it's infused. It's not only poured in by him, but we're aware that it's being poured in. A sort of special grace gift. And passive, that means it's not something we turn on. It's something the Lord gives. Infused and passive prayer cannot be turned on by us. It isn't like just sort of going and sitting down and sort of getting recollected and now you enter into that state of prayer. It's something which God turns on when and how He wills and for whom He wills. Just like that. We can't turn it on and we can't turn it off. Well, we can turn it off, yes, but we can't turn it on. Now, many of you will have experienced this. I'm sure this is a frequent experience of many people here, although they would never have used the word infused or passive, You know, you're just going about your business, just sitting down, perhaps, traveling in a bus, and you suddenly are very much aware of the presence of Jesus, presence of your Heavenly Father. And you find your heart burning within you, or you find yourself led in prayer in a certain direction. That's infused, that's passive. You know, you didn't sort of decide, I must pray for so-and-so, you just found you were sort of caught up by the Spirit and led to pray for someone, You may wake up in the morning, you may wake up in the morning, find you're praying for this person or that person, or you're thanking God or praising God, or you're asking for the Spirit to come on the world. You just, you didn't decide to do that. You just wake up and you're doing it. That's infused prayer. That's passive prayer. That's not something you can turn on. You can't say, well, it's great to wake up this way this morning and do the same tomorrow. If you do, you'll just wake up probably feeling with a bad headache, feeling very angry with God tomorrow. No, it's not something we can turn on. But we can predispose ourselves to receive this gift. And that's what sisters in contemplative communities would do. And they would do that by trying to cut themselves off a bit from the distractions of the world and also by giving sufficient time to prayer being alone with the Lord if we never give time to being alone with the Lord it's much more difficult for the Lord to introduce us to that sort of prayer thanks and God sometimes gives people special graces mystical graces they can be visions Words, touches, awareness of his presence in a very special way. Somebody can just suddenly be, suddenly feel that the room they're in or the bus they're in is just absolutely filled with the presence of God in a quite extraordinary way. A free gift of God, nothing they could bring about. You know, God can use that sort of gift for the conversion of someone. Therefore, it doesn't mean someone's mature in the spiritual life. Maybe someone who's not a Christian just is suddenly touched in a very powerful way by the presence of God, the presence of Jesus and that can be the beginning of the conversion. So, these things, well they happened in the New Testament remember St. Paul talked about being wrapped up into the third heaven well that was that sort of grace in, the, in a very extraordinary degree but they've happened throughout Christian history and, you know, these are blessings for which we should thank God And we shouldn't regard them as very exceptional, very extraordinary things for a few very privileged people and, you know, quite outside the scope of, you know, ordinary Christians. Indeed, some people are far too suspicious of these graces because they think that they mightn't be of God. In any case, they're not important and therefore the less we have of that, the better. And St. Teresa of Avila, I think, is very wise on this. She says, quite rightly, the value of these graces, these touches, when they're authentic, is that they increase our love for God and Jesus and other people so much. You see, when we get to the gates of heaven, we're not going to be judged on what sort of mystical graces or touches we had of the Lord. They're going to be judged, as Matthew's Gospel reminds us, Matthew 25, on how much we loved people. But these graces can be a great help in that direction. They can give us a much greater love of God and our neighbor. And, you know, many of the saints, you know, were sort of led to extraordinary heights of sanctity, very largely through extraordinary touches and graces of this kind. So, you see, they are valuable when they are authentic from the point of view of loving God and the neighbor. So they are very practical things from the point of view of Christian living. And therefore, they are graces for which we should thank God, and um, which we should not in any way despise. Now in the charismatic renewal, God seems to be giving a generous outpouring of special graces, special experiences of his presence. That's what seems to be happening. Right across the world, in many places, many people are beginning to have authentic religious experiences, you know, which are helping them spiritually, helping them to grow in love, often bringing them to Christ for the first time or bringing him to him bringing them to him in a much deeper way. Now, these things are happening so often that some traditional people are, are suspicious of that fact. They tend to say, well, these things are very rare and for a few special people, and this is happening too often in Westminster Friday night. It can't be rare. Not just Westminster Friday night, incidentally. But I think that is precisely what God is doing, or one of the things he's doing in the charismatic renewal. He is giving a very generous outpouring of these graces, as to judge from the Acts of the Apostles he did in the early church. So we should thank God for that. And they're not signs of sanctity, and they're not necessarily big blessings. Many of them are small blessings, small graces. But thank God for every blessing, every grace. I'm not saying every, every time someone has a picture in Westminster Prayer Group or when someone's praying over them, that's of the same sort of scale as when St. Teresa of Villa had one of her great mystical visions. No. It may be something very small compared with that. But thank God for small blessings and small graces too. And it's important to say too that you know, when we receive these experiences in baptism of the Spirit or elsewhere in our prayer meetings, they need to be supported by a disciplined Christian life and a disciplined life of prayer. Otherwise it will all fade away. You know, the life of prayer isn't just waiting for the next sort of consolation, grace of that kind. There has to be the disciplined life of prayer and the disciplined Christian life as a whole. God, Jesus, doesn't give us sort of consolations and graces of this time just so we can enjoy ourselves and then go on living our own lives. It's to help us to live better Christian lives and that means a more disciplined life of prayer and Christian life as a whole. And now I'm going to say a few words about the gift of tongues. I think it comes in here because, as Bob Pharisee reminded us, the gift of tongues is a contemplative gift of prayer. It's a gift of contemplative prayer. And that's a very important thing. You know, you come across some people who say, well, I don't feel called to the charismatic renewal. I don't feel called to the gift of tongues because I feel I'm called in the contemplative way. As if Friday night is not interested in the contemplative way, but if they just go and do some sort of silent meditation for a long time, that is. But they've completely misunderstood the nature of the charismatic spirituality and what happens on Friday night. Because I'm sure many people here do receive contemplative graces. And the gift of tongues is part of that. And indeed, sometimes mystical graces. And I'm sure that often there's much more contemplation happening in a noisy meeting on Friday night than there is when somebody spends an hour alone in prayer, which can sometimes be rather empty. But you remember what I said in my first talk. A fruitful participation in Friday night prayer meeting presupposes sufficient time alone with the Lord in silence each day. Yes, that silence sign is needed very much. But the gift of tongues can enrich our contemplative life. And I would stress the importance of persevering with the gift of tongues. You know, some people receive the beginnings of the gift of tongues and then give up. No, go on praying, go on getting others to pray for a fuller gift of tongues. And I would stress very much the importance of people who have the gift of tongues, praying every day in the gift of tongues, with the gift of tongues, and putting enough, side of time, enough time aside for it. And you remember the story of Jackie Pullinger in her famous book, Chasing the Dragon. She received a gift of tongues, she prayed a little with it, she was very disappointed, thought it was a complete fiasco or at any rate meant nothing to her and dropped it for nearly a year. And then she came across some people, some Americans, who made her promise to pray in tongues for a time a quarter of an hour each day. So she did because she promised it and she didn't find it uplifting and she didn't feel elevated and she didn't feel consoled or anything else, but she promised to do it, so she did. And praying in tongues didn't thrill her. But what did thrill her was what began to happen in her life when she prayed in tongues. Because when she started to pray in tongues, a quarter of an hour each day, she found that when she prayed for the sick, they began to be healed instead of not healed. That When she spoke to people about Jesus, they began to believe instead of not believing. In fact, she found that when she gave enough time to praying in tongues, the power of the Spirit was working in her life in a quite new way. And she's somebody who spends much of her time speaking in tongues and she even said this that when she feels she must have a rest because she's so over- overworked and so overburdened she plays less in tongues for a bit because less happens. But praying in tongues in that way can sort of be a channel uh, of you know, the Lord's power in our lives. Now I'm going to say a few words about difficulties in prayer. You know one doesn't want to give the impression, all right, there's content to the prayer and everything else, and it's all plain sailing and all easy going. It is not. And difficulties can be due to quite a number of things. It can be health or tiredness. So if we're not in good health, then prayer may be difficult, but don't be too hard on yourself. Or if you're overtired, prayer can be difficult, we'll try to rest a bit. It can be because someone is not giving enough time to prayer. So the important thing there may be to give more time to prayer. It can be due to disobedience to God in our lives. If someone is not trying to obey God in something, if someone is not trying to overcome serious sin in their lives, then they can't expect the Holy Spirit to be giving them consolations in prayer or blessing their life of prayer until they try to change. So you see, if one's going through a time of difficulty in prayer, it's good to ask oneself to pray about it. Well, I wonder why this is. It may be any of the reasons I've mentioned, and it may be another reason. It may be that God is leading us on in the life of prayer, and that we're entering a time of night, or aridity, or darkness or a cloud, a tunnel, different (coughs) spiritual writers use different phrases, but they all agree on this, that it's quite normal that in the Christian life of prayer there will be these times of darkness, clouds, tunnels, heredity. Please turn the cassette over now. they all agree on this, that it's quite normal that in the Christian life of prayer there will be these times of darkness, clouds, tunnels, aridity. And times that it's not because we're falling back in fervor, but because God is leading us on to a higher form of prayer. And this can be a test of fidelity, a test of detachment from consolations. You see, we have to love God, the God of consolations, and not the consolations of God. And some people can be giving themselves to prayer because they love the consolation so much, but we have to love the giver and not the gift. And St. John of the Cross is a man who wrote very wonderfully in this, and he talked about the two dark nights of the soul, at least the dark night of the soul and the dark night of the spirit. And the first one came precisely when people began to find discursive prayer no longer possible or difficult. And the second one, which is much more difficult, you know, is a sort of further purification. They're purifications of the soul. Now, these times of darkness in prayer may be very painful. But they can be times of very great growth in prayer. And it's most important to persevere and to not give up. And one can say at this point, too, it's, it's good to remind you that, you know, in the life of prayer, we are also involved in spiritual warfare. And the devil also can be a cause of throwing out our life of prayer. We're not just fighting against flesh and blood, as St. Paul's reminds us, but against principalities and powers. And he can play his part in our difficulties in prayer. So when you consider these difficulties and problems, we can understand the need for a spiritual counsellor or director. We all need the help of the discernment of other people in the life of prayer. Nobody is so holy, so perfect, so wise that they can just paddle their own canoe on their own. We need the help of other people. Now one of the problems at the moment in the church is the shortage of priests because it's quite normal that many people go for a priest for this sort of help. And therefore we also obviously need to make use of other people like religious and lay people But as a matter of fact, some lay people are more gifted than many priests in this particular ministry. Take from Catherine of Siena, one of the greatest spiritual directors of all time in the church, doubtless. And she was a lay woman. So, but in any case, with the shortage of priests, we need to sort of be looking around sometimes for suitable lay people to help in this field. And you may remember, I went to a, a course of spiritual direction in New Mexico last year, And we were over 50 people, a month's course on spiritual direction, and most of the people were lay people. This course was for training lay people to be spiritual directors. But always of course, eventually, under the bishops of the church. And another thing which can help here is prayer partners. I know there are people in this prayer group, and it's a very good thing, who have prayer partners. Someone else with whom they share their life of prayer, they share with each other, And that can also be a help and a support. And in connection with that, another thing which can be a real help is keeping a spiritual journal. In Pecos, the monks, they very much recommend that people keep a spiritual journal. Some people do it every day. Other people, like myself, just write down something when there seems to be something special to write down. But you know maybe one day you seem to get a certain inspiration in prayer, a certain experience in prayer, a certain help in prayer, a certain intuition in prayer, and you know we can forget those things very easily. And if you write them down, they're there, and you can read it over again, and that can be helped not only for you, but also for your spiritual counselor. And another thing which can help in this life of prayer which is ne- a necessary thing in the life of prayer, is spiritual reading. Above all of the Bible, and I'm not going to develop that, because we've talked about it on other occasions, but it is also good to read some of the spiritual classics of the church. Books like St. Augustine's Confessions. Books like... Saint, uh, books like... Uh, the great Saint Teresa of Avila's writings on, on contemplation—I know of no one who I think has more written more beautifully about contemplation than she has—or the Little Flowers autobiography. I mean, there are many sort of great spiritual writers in the Church. Brother Lawrence, the practice of the presence of God, the imitation of Christ, Pedacosa. In our time, many people find the. You know, that Benedictine, that Cistercian in America. What's his name? He's gone. Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton, Merton. many find helpful. Well, it can be good to read these, but a certain warning. Uh, Don't think you have to follow each one in everything. And particularly when they were written a long time ago, and there may be quite a lot of need... Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And that's just, I think, where we are in the charismatic renewal. There is what is new and there is what is old. Now some people may be in danger of only seeing what is new. And saying, well, apart from the, the Bible, I'm not interested in the Christian tradition of prayer and spirituality throughout the centuries. I've got all I need in the charismatic renewal. what's happening now. That's right, sorry. And that is a mistake because that's missing out on a great many wonderful treasures of the church's spirituality from which we can and should learn. On the other hand, some people only see what is n- n- old. And they think, well, the the charismatic renewal is rather a sort of immature sort of thing and the main thing is to get people onto some sort of solid traditional spirituality like Benedictine spirituality, Carmelite spirituality, Franciscan spirituality, Jesuit spirituality or one of the other traditional forms and once we get onto that it's all right. Well, that's not right either because in the charismatic renewal God is doing something new. He's doing a new thing. It's in line with the authentic tradition of the past, but it's not just a repetition, it's not just a turning back to the past. And we are not called just to be absorbed by one of the spiritual traditions of the past. And you know, the charismatic renewal can go very well with a spiritual tradition of the past. I mean, I'm a Benedictine, I find no difficulty in my Benedictine spiritual tradition and the charismatic renewal. I think the charismatic renewal crowns very happily my Benedictine spirituality. And that would be true, I think, for other spiritualities in the church. And I'm going to say just a few, what I think are a few of the characteristics of this charismatic spirituality and life of prayer. I'm going to do this very briefly. Characteristics in addition to what we share with other Catholic spiritualities. For example, the place of the Eucharist and the sacraments, which I talked about earlier. I think one of our characteristics is interceding with expectant faith, whether it's for healing or other things. In the charismatic renewal, we seem to have a much greater expectant faith that God's going to answer prayer, and he does seem to answer prayer more often. I think that's one of the blessings. Then, the very special place of the spiritual reading of the Bible, In a very special way in the charismatic renewal, people are finding that daily reading of the Bible in a prayerful way is really building them up spiritually, really allowing God to speak to them. A third is spontaneous prayer, the freedom to pray spontaneously in our own words. That's obviously a characteristic, isn't it? A fourth, praying in informal groups, where there's just two people praying together, or three or four, or a large prayer group like this. You know, we're used to a group getting together and praying informally. I'm sure that's a great blessing from God. I'm sure that's a great richness. I'm sure that's an important heritage. And then, of course, the gift of tongues. That goes without saying. And I think the renewal of the gift of tongues in our time is a very great blessing in the life of prayer. In the life of contemplative prayer too, I would say. And above all, I think the characteristic, the most important characteristic of the spirituality of our renewal is the release of praise.
1: And my last word
0: is going to be about praise again. You know, rarely to give ourselves to praising God, especially when things are difficult. You know, the Pope said when he was in New York, he referred to Catholics as saying, we are the Easter people and Alleluia is our song. And I think that's it's very, in a specially way, true of the eclectics and the charismatic renewal. We are an Easter people, we're called to be an Easter people, you know, that this life of praise overflows in us, especially when things are difficult. You know, I was saying to someone the other day, I don't know how I shall die, but I would like to die with the praise of God, of Jesus on my lips. I'd love to die in that way. That's what life in heaven is going to be praising Him." and that is a most wonderful blessing of the renewal and i think it's because of the praise that we, we have so much in the way of joy and peace and healing and power and loving fellowship i think that all follows the praise i use praise in the wide sense worship adoration thanksgiving i think that is the most precious heritage of our of our charismatic renewal spirituality and one we really need to give ourselves to more and more. And if we do, on well, the moment we're going through Holy Week, and we remember repentance, and we remember the sacrifices of course. but even there, there must be praise in our hearts. And if we do, we shall come through to the joy and praise of Easter, and eventually to the joy and praise of the eternal Easter. That is the end of the recording, and the rest of the tape is blank.